0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So Amos chapter 2 verse 9 and this is what God's speaking. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you for forty years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons, and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and command the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground where no snare has been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth where there is nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the Sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? And it would be a great help
1: if you could keep your Bibles open at Amos chapter 2, that's page 917 in our church Bibles. And... As we turn to God's word, let's pray for his help. Your word is living light upon our darkened eyes. Father, we come to you tonight knowing our need, that our eyes by nature are darkened, And so we pray once again for your mercy to open our eyes that your light may shine in our hearts that we may see once again the beauty of Christ. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Passports have been in the news a lot this week. Apparently there's been a 12 year high in the number of people who are applying for passport renewals and because of the uh, large numbers of uh, passports coming in there's been a, a, a backlog of um, passports not getting out in time and so there have been various sob stories in the news about people who have booked their holidays and their passport hasn't come and it hasn't come in the post and they've had to cancel their holiday um, because their passport hasn't come on time. And it would be terrible if that's happened to you here tonight. I'm very sorry for you indeed. Uh, I I love my passport. Um, I I have it here. I I, I don't love it because of the picture, which um, is actually quite horrible. Um, But I love my passport because of what it does for me. It gives me access to lots of wonderful places. It means that I can go on holiday abroad to different countries. I can enjoy it. But of course, the thing about my passport is that For 50 weeks of the year or so, it just lies in my desk at home. It doesn't change how I live my life at all, uh, day in, day out. But when I want it, when I need it, I turn to it, and I bring it out, and I'm grateful for it. My fear is tonight that there will be some here who have started to view God's grace a bit like a passport. We're, we're, We're very glad we have it. We know that it is important, that it gives us access to wonderful things. But day in, day out, it makes very little difference to how we live. And most of the time, we keep it locked away in a spiritual drawer somewhere, making no impact on our lives. My fear is that there'll be some here tonight for whom God's grace is just a passport. And I say that because in our reading from Amos 2, that is what God's people We're doing with God's grace. Last week we saw that God's patience um, will not last forever. He knows what the nations are up to. And he sees their wickedness, their evil. And his patience won't last forever. But Amos dropped a bombshell. Because God also sees what his people are up to. And his patience will not last forever. With them, And so after dropping that bombshell, which would have been uh, shocking news indeed to God's people at that time in history, I think Amos anticipates an objection from his hearers, uh, um, a counter-argument, if you like, to his announcement. I guess it would go something like this. The people would say, but we are God's people. He has chosen us. We are his loved ones. He, he would never do that to us. He would not judge us and condemn us. If you like, the people would wave their spiritual passports around and say, look, we are one of God's people. This judgment is not for us. It doesn't trouble us. And I think tonight, Amos addresses that false argument to God's people and dare I say it to us here tonight, if that is what we think. And in effect, uh, first of all, he says this. Don't be complacent with God's grace. Don't be complacent with God's grace. Uh, this section begins with a reminder of God's grace. It's there in verse 9. I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. Do you see God's grace for his people preparing a land not their own for them to live in and be blessed in? Well then, verse 10, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. Do you see again God's grace in rescuing his people from slavery? And then notice, and this is so important, notice that God's grace doesn't then stop there for his people. Do you see how Amos continues? Um, He says in verse 11, I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Uh, Last year I went um, go-karting with some young people uh, from our church and um, it was a very clever track that we went to. Um, It was a very normal looking track but what was clever about it was that beneath the ground around the perimeter of the track Um, the the guy who owned it had buried a a wire that ran right around the track. And this wire was clever because it could talk to the go-karts. And if a go-kart was driven in a wild fashion around the track and it spun off at a certain point, and it crossed this wire, the wire would would cut the engine on the go-kart. And it was wonderful because our our young people weren't the best drivers. Uh, What they lacked in skill that they made up for in their ambition And they would often career off the track, spinning wildly out of control. But the instant they crossed that line around the perimeter, their engine was cut and they came to a halt. As fast as they drove off the track, they would be stopped short of danger. And that's, I guess, a picture of how God had been gracious to his people once they were in the land. You see, God gave his people, the Nazarites, to give an example of how to live upright lives and he gave his people the prophets to remind them of who God was and to remind them of God's ways. And if, and God knew they would, and if they wandered from the track, from the way that God had laid out for them, the idea was that the prophets would stop them going too far. It would stop them in their tracks and turn them around and bring them back on track with God. So do you see God's grace, providing a wonderful land of blessing, a wonderful rescue from slavery, and then ongoing provision and care whilst they were in the land. And so at the end of verse 11, the Lord says, Is this not true, people of Israel? Have I not been gracious to you? And of course, the answer is yes. Yes. But here's where the tricky point comes, because I think Amos' hearers must have been thinking, "Yes, exactly, Amos. That's our point. You see, God has been gracious to us. We are His people. He's done all this for us. Therefore, He won't touch us now. This this news of judgment is not for us, because He loves us. Um, This warning is not something we need to take seriously. But they were wrong." You see, they had become complacent with God's grace. Remember last week we saw in verse four that they had turned to worship other gods in that promised land. Verse six, they were failing to live as his people as they oppressed the poor for selfish gain and they were dishonoring God's name. Verse seven, father and son, use the same girl. And so profane my holy name. And this is so sad. They were taking God's grace and throwing it back in his face. And uh, Why, after all, had God chosen them? Listen to how Moses describes it back in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. He says this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. God had loved Israel. Remember that scene from P.E. at school? Uh, It's time to split up into teams, and there's two team captains appointed, and uh, the candidates um, line up in a nervous row, and the captains pick their teams one by one from that row of of people. And you know how it works, how it worked in my school? The, The captains always chose the biggest, the fastest, the tallest, the most able first. And at the end, there was the small, and the weak, and the nervous, and people like myself If Israel had been in that lineup along with the other nations, she should have been last because she was the smallest, the most insignificant and yet God had graciously chosen her. And isn't that always the way in salvation that God chooses people not because they are impressive or strong or able but so often they are the weakest, the least And it's because of his love for them. But these people whom God had loved and chosen, they were ignoring God and denying him. And so God says, verse 13, Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. Imagine a farmer who's been working hard all year, looking after his crop, he's planted the seed, he's looked after the soil, he's watered it and weeded it and protected it. Uh, the time has come for harvest, he's gone out and, and cut the, the grain down, he's threshed it, separating the head from the, from the, um, from the grain, and uh, he's gathered it and put it into his cart, and, and at last he has what he needs to survive the winter, he has what he needs to sell and barter and get more supplies, and he's now heading home from the fields. With his wagon full of his harvest. And he must be thinking, at last, I have what I need to survive. And just as he's heading home, the cart hits a rut and it topples. And you know what happens. You see, the point is, what should have been a blessing becomes a curse. It's a picture of of what happens to people who are complacent with God's grace. And in the next few verses, we see a number of reversals as what should have been a strength, a blessing becomes a curse. And so the Lord concludes this section, I imagine, with great sadness. And it is a tremendously sad verse. Chapter three, verse two over the page. These are, I don't have a list of my top 10 saddest verses in the Bible, but if I did, I guess this would be a contender. He says, 3 verse 2, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will, I must. I am compelled by my holy character. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. This is a picture of what happens when people are complacent with God's grace. And so the question for us tonight is this. What are we doing with God's grace in our lives, in our hearts? I heard recently about a conversation that took place between two Christian students at a school. Um, One Christian student was using language that was crude and inappropriate. And the other Christian student said to this first one... "Um, tell me, how come you're speaking this way if you're a Christian? Is is that the right way to behave? And the response came back, oh, it's okay. I am so close to God that he will forgive anything I do. If I, uh, dare I say it, that is an example of someone who is complacent with God's grace. Uh, We may not be quite as blunt as that, one people was but are we in danger of viewing God's grace as license to do whatever we want are we in danger of hearing the warnings of Amos and saying well they can't apply to me the Lord offers his people a relationship he extends his love to them and the right response is to love him in return to want to worship him to want to give our lives to him but if we persist in abusing his grace Then the words of Amos 3 verse 2 come to us as a strong warning. Don't be complacent with God's grace. Well, I guess we might be thinking, how is this possible? How could God's people drift so far from where they should be? If they had received so much from God, how could they now be in this predicament where they are so far from God? And I think Amos gives us a crucial insight into how this has happened. And he says, I think that it has happened because, first of all, God's people have become complacent with God's word. And that's our second point. Don't be complacent with God's word. We skipped over it, but verse 12 is a crucial verse. Back in chapter 2, T verse 12. After recounting God's grace to his people, Amos then says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. The people were complacent with God's word. Remember that go-kart with the perimeter wire around the track, a safety measure against um, destruction. Well, God's people had turned off the safety mechanism. They were going it alone. And sooner or later, they were going to career off the track with no safety net to stop them. Uh, The Nazarites and the prophets, uh, what is Amos referring to here? Well, uh, the Nazarites... We read back in Numbers 6 um, how they were meant to live. They were meant to be um, moral examples to God's people of how to live an upright life in the promised land. They are meant to be sort of example A of how to live a good life in front of God's people. Uh, we don't know for certain what was happening, but I think it's likely that the Nazarites were, were basically spoiling the party for God's people in the promised land. Uh, we read back in verse 8 that the people were, were drinking wine. Um, in in the house of their gods, I guess, getting drunk on the the fines they had taken. And I suspect the Nazarites were being um, party spoilers. They, They were not drinking. They were saying, no, this isn't right. You shouldn't be drinking and getting drunk on wine in the temple. And so I think it seemed that God's people had said, well, enough of that. We don't like killjoys. And they made the Nazarites drink wine with them. In other words, they had silenced God's word. They had taken the command of Numbers 6 to the Nazarites. They had ignored those commands. And in doing so, they had lost the example God had given them of how to live rightly in the promised land. And I think we, are, we can be in danger of making the same move. Within our Christian circles, we can uh, so easily follow the crowd. We can base our level of moral behavior on those around us. Um, And we want other people to follow the crowd with us. We don't like people who show us up. I've seen this happen, um, for example, with with humor. When certain people start using humor, which I think is possibly too crude or crossing the line, it can drag other people with them. They can start to to share in that humor. And people who who look awkward and uncomfortable are written off as being old-fashioned and out of touch. And they're kind of marginalized and sort of, Put pre- the pressure put on them to kind of join in the laughter. It can happen in Christian circles. Um, what about the sort of films that we choose to watch? Uh, I wonder if so often we make that choice based on what other Christians are watching. And if a certain Christian makes a stance on a film that we don't agree with, well, we kind of put pressure on them to watch the film so we don't feel bad about ourselves. And the point is we haven't gone back to God's word to decide how we should be living We've just taken our cue from those around us. You may want to think of other examples afterwards over coffee. But there is a danger when we silence those God has given us to show us how to live a good life. And behind it all is their complacency with God's word. That's the Nazarites. What about the prophets? The prophets were given to God's people to remind them about God to remind them of his ways, and to bring them back to him if they wandered. But Israel had silenced the prophets. And the same thing can happen today when God's people silence God's word. We can do this in all kinds of ways. We can do it openly. We can just choose not to look at the Bible. We can ignore the Bible and push it to one side and... And crack on with life without reference to the Bible. That's a very sort of obvious way of silencing the prophets, uh, silencing God's word. Uh, perhaps more subtly, we can pay reference to the Bible, but then we pick and choose which bits of the Bible we want to pay attention to and which bits we want to just turn the music down on. For example, um, the Stuart Tannen song that we sing here in Christ Alone. There is that line in the second verse. The wrath of God was satisfied. It is what the Bible teaches, and yet there are many who don't like that line, and they change it, they take it out. They pick and choose which bits of the Bible they listen to. We might do this, but my guess is that here at Christ Church, we're going to be more subtle than that when we think about ignoring God's word. Here are a couple of ways that I have looked at my own heart, and I see myself in danger of doing this i'm in danger of becoming over familiar with the bible and so i stop engaging with it when i was at bible college i went on a particular placement at a church and um, they didn't put bibles out in the pews like we do here Um, they did print out the passage on a service sheet but there were no verses in the passage And um, I preached there one Sunday, and I found it very hard to show people um, where I was getting the um, the verses from, because there was no verses written out in the service sheet. And I said to the vicar afterwards, I said, oh, it's actually very hard with no verses to to point people back to God's word. And he said something to me remarkable. He said, and this was someone who who said he was evangelical. He said, "Um, Pete, I, I know my Bible so well now that I don't have to read it anymore. I just keep it closed, I, I know the passages in my head, and, and he didn't. I, I, know, I watched him for the rest of the year, he didn't look at the Bible, he just listened in his head. And that to me is a, an example of a person who, who has become over-familiar with the Bible. They think they know what it will say, they don't expect to learn anything new from it, they don't expect to be challenged afresh by it, and they have just closed the Bible in their hearts. We wouldn't do that here, I think, physically, but... When we read passages, do we daydream? Do our our hearts and minds wander to Monday morning or what we're going to have for dinner after church? Do we stop expecting the Bible to teach us new things and to challenge us in new ways? That's one way we can turn down the volume on God's word by becoming over-familiar with it. Another way is that we can pursue the study of the Bible with the wrong goal in mind. Uh, This happened to me, it happens to me, it happened to me at Bible college. I wasn't the only one. I got more excited about the structure of a passage, about a particular meaning of a word, or about the the argument that was uh, at work, and I stopped getting excited about the meaning of the passage, about what God was saying to me, about what it said about Christ and his glory. And this is so subtle because it is good and right to work hard at Bible study. I hope we all do in our small groups when we gather together. We come having worked hard at the passage and we take it seriously. But there is a danger that we get more excited about the structure and the process of study than we do about what the Bible is actually telling us. And so we stop applying the scriptures to our hearts. We stop letting our hearts be warmed by the beauty of Christ afresh. And we walk away thinking, ah, I've nailed that passage. I thought of one final way that we can turn the volume down on God's word. I think it's perhaps the most serious, uh, the one that I have found most personally challenging this week. It's this. We can get into the habit of hearing what the Bible says and then doing nothing about it for the rest of the week you ever done that? Remember the words of Jesus we looked at last week from Luke 6. Jesus, who is the great, the final prophet, God's final word to his people. He said back in Luke chapter 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now there will be times when we all fail to live out what we believe in practice. But if we make a habit of it, if we know that increasingly there's a huge gap between what we profess and how we practice our lives, if that gap is growing and widening, if we don't mind that gap occurring, can I suggest that we are not listening to the voice of scripture, not in any meaningful way in our lives? Certainly in Amos chapter 2, that is what God's people were doing don't be complacent with God's word. And in the beginning of chapter 3, we see why it's so dangerous to become complacent with God's word. We flick back over the page in chapter 3, um, verses 3 to 6 contain a series of statements taken from everyday life. And they, they contain a series of, of cause and effects. So, so verse 3, Amos says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Well, No. People arrange a meeting and they they come together because they've agreed to do so. Or or verse four. Does a lion roar in a thicket when he has no prey? Well, well, no, of course not. Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Well, no, of course not. And so the list goes on. There's a a series of cause and effects from everyday life. Does England ever play in a football World Cup without people getting overexcited and overhyped? No, of course not. Cause and effect. And then the punch comes. This is where it's all going. It's there in verse 7. Cause and effect. Well, verse 7, surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Do you see? Cause and effect. The Lord has a plan. What happens? He reveals it to his prophets. Cause and effect. And so, Verse 8, at the end, Amos says, The sovereign Lord has spoken, he has roared, who can but prophesy? Cause and effect. Which means that when we come to God's word, again, these flimsy bits of paper covered in ink blobs, what we have here is not some idea that Amos has plucked out of the air and he thought, Oh, I quite fancy that, I'll write it down. No, there's a cause and effect happening here. That the Lord has a plan for the world and he has given it to his prophets. And when that happens, there's always a cause and effect. The prophets speak. And we have the fruits of that process here tonight. Which means that we would be crazy not to listen to the voice of the prophet. Cause and effect. The Lord has a plan. He has revealed it to his prophets. There is no other way that we know his plan. There is no other plan at work in the world. The Lord has shown it to his prophets and to us tonight. So let us not play loose and fast with the prophet's message, with God's word. There is an encouragement here for us. Um, The PCC spent a morning yesterday thinking about a number of um, crucial topics facing the church in this country today. And it was good to remember that God's word is reliable. It is accurate. It is something we can stand on. And when people around us lose hearts and lose trust in God's word, when they when they walk away from God's word, we don't need to lose hearts. Because there is only one plan. There is one Lord, and he has revealed it in his word. So let us not lose heart in his word when others do. Don't be complacent with God's word. Well, as I finish and as we prepare to share together that supper that Paul mentioned, that reminder of Christ's death for us on the cross, I just want to speak to two different kinds of people here tonight. There may be some here who know that uh, we have been wandering from God, that we have viewed his grace like a passport that we enjoy, but we leave it tucked away for most of our lives. Perhaps we know that we have been complacent with God's word. We have hardened our hearts. We have hardened ourselves to Christians. We have cut ourselves off from fellowship. We know that we have cut off that safety mechanism, that we are hurtling away from God's word and from God's grace. If that is you here tonight... And my guess is there will be some for whom that is the case. Can I plead with you to hear the warning of Amos? Because at this stage it is a warning. It hasn't yet happened. Return to the Lord. Come back to him. Come back to his grace. Come back under his word. There will be many others of us here tonight who do genuinely love the Lord. Uh, We are genuinely trying to serve him out of a gratitude of, of joy to his grace. But we know we're not perfect. We know at times that we spin off the track. We make mistakes. We'll just take heart again tonight that the Lord has given us all that we need in his word to keep us going back on track Use tonight as a as a chance just to remember all that He's given us. If we have just wandered slightly, if we've just become a bit cold and our love for Him, come back tonight. Use this as a reminder. And as we come to remember God's grace to us, let's not be complacent. Let's come with fresh joy, with fresh wonder, because we are the least, we are the smallest. And yet he has chosen us and he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know our weaknesses. We thank you that our hearts wander so often. And we thank you that in your wisdom and in your grace, you have made provision for wandering hearts. We thank you for your word that brings us back. We thank you that it guides us and opens our eyes. And Father, please help us to have our eyes opened once again to the wonderful mercy you've shown us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.